I suddenly got a sense of the big picture. It was a kind of political consciousness waking up. Climate change is a great introduction to what might be called political consciousness. And by that I mean you can't really understand the issue properly unless you look deeply into the heart of capitalism, you look deeply into the nature of governance, and you look deeply into the human soul, and only then see how they link together. And then you begin to get climate change and think, oh my God, it's really, really hard to deal with this. It's a fundamental problem embedded, endemic in the entire world system. Hello, welcome to Confessions. This is the podcast where I talk to interesting, clever people and uh, try and get them to uh, explain their, uh, I guess, their worldview in the context of their life experience. That's the sort of thing that we do. And um, I'm very, very pleased indeed to have with me this morning, Jonathan Rosen. Welcome. Very, very nice to have you here. Uh, Jonathan uh, is a philosopher and a chess grandmaster, which everybody thinks is Everybody goes sort of ooh at that point that this is the most. It doesn't do any harm. Let's put it that way. Yeah. <laughs> and you have a, a a think tank. Is that is that yep. fair? Uh, well, I wouldn't call it a think tank, but that's the closest approximation. Think tanks are kind of twenty twentieth century kind of term, but it's certainly a research institute where we try and make a difference. Yeah. And explain to me a little bit about that. Before. So we're called Perspectiva. Um, our tagline is Systems, Souls, and Society. And the, the basic premise was that. Lots of people are working on large-scale systemic change, so, you know, new, new models of the economy, new political systems. How do you restore democracy? Some are working on things like climate change. And some are also working on the inner life, like how do you promote well-being and flourishing and so forth. But not many were actually integrating them and trying to find what a, what a sort of model of society would look like in which these different kinds of things started to cross-pollinate and inform each other. So we thought we would go squarely in that space and try and be the kind of expert generalist, if you like, who tried to make sense of how these things fit together with a particular emphasis on the inner life like you know dear listener you can understand why it is that i would want uh mr rosen on my uh podcast so can we start with you and where you come from from your accent you're you're a scot yes and uh, tell me something about your your sure. home life where you're from and right. um and your family and so forth so i was born in aberdeen or aberdeen as they call it up there and um, I, nothing particular happened, as far as I know, until I was about six when I became diabetic. Uh, that was a sort of formative influence as a child because it sort of just meant that I became a bit more self-conscious than many young children, maybe. I had to manage it myself. I was injecting by myself from a young age. Um, I also learned chess around the same time, maybe a year before. And that was, uh, at that point, just one of many things I did. I played football a lot. Um, and then a few years later, some trouble in family life, parents kind of separated. I moved to London for a while. Just so happened on that street, there was a famous chess teacher called Richard James. And then I came in back. In London? Yeah. And it was, well, Whitson, technically probably not quite London, but, right. you know, okay. thereabouts. So um, in terms of the, the sort of uh, books and thinking in, in terms of your family, mm -hmm. do, you, do you have brothers and sisters? I have an older brother, Mark. Right, yeah. right. So is that a part of, was chess a part of your family life? Yeah. Or? So um, the way it worked really was that around the age, ages, primary school really, there was, an, there was a primary school chess club and there were, we were quite good in the local scene. So this was like our little world. We would have, you know, competing schools and we would get very excited about these matches coming up and there was a lot of rapport in the small group of four or five, maybe six players at school. And I was a young one of them. So my, my older brother was board one and I was usually board four or five. And by that I mean... He played on the he played the strongest players and I played some of the weaker ones. I see. Um, but what happened there was I just got really into it and gradually got noticed and then selected for things and things kind of snowballed. Um, but at that point, it wasn't really a family drive. It was more like it was one of many things going on. So I also played football a lot growing up, and What's we had. Your team? Aber well, Aberdeen still. Okay, oh, you know, okay. I used to have a season ticket when I was younger, okay. but over the years I've kind of lost touch. Okay. Because there was, there was a point actually on a Wednesday night, and this is what often defines our lives, there was chess club and there was also a football club um, and I had to choose. And at some point I chose chess. It just felt more true to who I was somehow and um, I can't say I've regretted it. Uh, but obviously there are moments where I think... It might have been interesting to. And did your yeah. did your parents play chess or was that that? No, puzzle? it was it wasn't it wasn't really a chess culture as such. But we're going back here to like the, the sort of mid eighties ish and the mid to late eighties, and um, at around that time, chess was a somewhat bigger part of the culture than it is now. It was on television sometimes um, in your average bookshop. You would see quite a big chess selection. 
um, it was a more a bigger feature of school curricula, maybe, and um, chess was somehow just slightly is that cold war. Is that cold war? Well, yeah. So, 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 yeah. Chess and the Cold War were great allies. Yeah. You know, the whole sort of tense atmosphere of binary opposites fighting each other, and you know that that sort of played very well. Um, and the that sort of period was where chess sort of felt meaningful somehow, and it hit, hit the cultural sweet spot. Um, and I um, I grew up in that, I suppose. Uh, but it, it, you know, all of the stuff that came later when I'm reflecting back on what it meant at the time, you're just doing what seems normal. You know, I was just following my, following my bliss to put it in Campbell's terms or just, just following my impulse about what was fun really. Um, but what was clear from chess was that I was also growing in a sense, like I could feel like whatever this is, it's stretching me. And that was very alluring. That kind of kept me coming back. I mean, I, I know it's terribly cod psychology, but if, if you're young and your parents split up, um, and there's there's some sort of trauma, I guess, within within the family yeah, structure. Yeah, yeah. Then the sort of retreat into you know a yeah. small little board and the order of a yes. a small little board has to be something. That's, absolutely, uh, absolutely. And I, I write about this in the book uh, quite extensively. And and like you say, it's difficult now to know how much of this is fabricated after the fact. But in terms of a plausible story, it does make sense. And you know, the chess world, the chess game, is something that you can control. There's a certain amount of resistance, so it's not as though you're just like decorating things on your bedroom floor. You're actually up against the sort of force of life coming back at you in some sense. So you feel it's real, it's true to your encounter with the world in some way. And destruction is a real, is, 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 it's not just about creating order like you might no, with Lego. there is sublimated because, violence. You yes, know, yes, it's, yes. It's a brutal game. I mean, it's a beautiful game, but it has this brutality laced within it. And so while I was growing up, there was a sense in which I was probably sublimating, you know, the technical psychological term. Um, and that's, that's probably a very healthy thing. I probably, you know, coped through that. I would go to my chessboard and things would make sense. For a little while, I could sort of make sense of it and get better and grow and not do any harm. So I can understand the sort of order and having read a bit of your writing, uh, the one thing uh, that your writing doesn't sort of smell of is like terrible competitiveness. No, you, no. you don't. You don't. You don't. So one of the yeah. things that you imagine about chess is yes, there's a sort of I don't know pattern recognition and yeah, yeah. ordering things and things like that. But also you've got to have this. Yeah. I mean, presumably you've got to have this very steely yeah. desire to win yeah. as well. Right. So this is curious because I could turn that. I could turn on that gear, if you like. I could go into that mode of competitiveness, but it was never a first nature. It always felt like a second nature thing that I would have to almost build myself up towards. To play chess well, you do have to kind of love the competitive atmosphere to some extent, but there is scope to also have a vantage point outside of it. And that's what most chess players don't have, actually. I would say most competitive players who become grandmasters, they live and breathe to win their next game. And if anything, I mean, I achieved quite a lot in chess, but if there was something that stopped me going even further... It was a sense in which realizing that, you know, the competitive life has limitations in terms of its rewards, that to live in a constant state of wanting to win isn't altogether healthy. And so you can play chess for the joy of playing chess. For the joy of playing it. Also, to some extent, for what you learn about your own mind, because you're, you're, every game you play, you're recording usually. So you can look back at it and say, what was I thinking then? Yes. Like really, when people say, what was I thinking? You know, in a sense, in chess, you can really relive that moment and say, well, I chose to do this. Why did I do it? And in that sense, it's a kind of encounter with the mind. You know, you're kind of getting to see yourself and your own cogitations that much better. Uh, and chess is particularly good at that because of the nature of the game. So you, you can go back to you as a teenager and you can see what moves you made yeah. and you can think, oh, that's the point to which I lost it or, so, or yes. something silly I did there. Yeah. And you can realise why you did, you can see why you did that. I mean, and, I mean certainly uh, at the time, I mean, you, your memory traces will fade, of course, but you know, often we analyse our games within a few hours or days of playing them. And so it's very, um, very much salient. Like I felt that pain of that mistake what was going on? What did I assume? What did I fear? What did I expect too much of? So you're really, it's a kind of meta, you know, metacognition. You're getting to think about your own thinking. And in the process of that, you're becoming more aware of who you are and how you work. Uh, and often what's striking about it, and this is what chess offers maybe better than many things, is that it's a little bit of an encounter with your automatic self. You know, like we, we think we're all about our conscious self and, you know, the decisions we make and the reasons we have. But so much of what we do is decided on the basis of our, our automaticity, our kind of unconscious. Yes, yes, yes. And, and chess gives you a direct feeling for that because you can see how that manifests on the board and you yes. go, oh, my God, that's me. That's I did what that. I did. Yeah, 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 yeah. I play a little bit of chess. I'm terrible at it. But I, I sort of understand 
well, the reason I lose as much as I do is that I have a sort of reptilian uh, sort of go get them instinct. And I always lose because I'm way too aggressive. Right, 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 right. You know, and you must see that all the time. In, yeah. Well, there's a lot, especially, I think it actually, it's quite, quite closely related to how good you are. I think at the early stages of chess, the desire to attack is very strong. Mm. I think many players, when they're playing in club chess, the desire to sort of have a simple schema whereby you go straight for the opponent's king. It's like lobbing the ball in the other side of the, you know, the pitch and hoping for the best and if you're up against a good defender it just doesn't, doesn't work um, but as you get better you begin to love like I think Magnus Carlsen the current world champion he says having preferences is having weaknesses and what he means by that is if you get really really good you don't have this oh I'm an attacker identity issue I you see. just have this what's the best move issue you know I see I see I see so that's that's a psychological thing about dealing with your own yes. inner nature totally. isn't it totally. and chess is full of that if you allow it to be I mean I wouldn't want people to think that every chess player out there is doing this there's a lovely line by Aldous Huxley, experience is not what happens to you, it's what you do with what happens to you. And in the same way, I think chess is a great resource for those who know how to access it, and those who know how to do that kind of learning. But it doesn't happen by itself. That's very interesting. So we, you, you, you become this sort of little chess prodigy? Is that, is that a, I would is that... say I was sub-prodigy. I was sort okay. of pro, a promising junior, as I would okay. call it. There are okay. real prodigies. I, I wasn't really one of them. Okay. No. Sub-prodigy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and it, you go through school and philosophy. Uh, is that, is that something you start reading? Um, actually, the, the first encounter with philosophy was in fifth year or sixth year at school. That's like you know A-level time roughly here. Um, one of our RE teachers lent a friend of mine a philosophy book which found its way to me and that was my first encounter and I got really into it. What was that? It was a, I don't even remember its name. It was a slim volume, What is Philosophy? It was one of these, you know, it could have been almost anything. Um, but what I do remember is just the very tenor of it, you know, the feeling of it, the kind of fundamental questioning process. And I thought, well, I'm, I'm kind of doing that already at the chessboard. It was natural to constantly ask what's going on here? What does this mean? Those sort of fun, foundational questions were instinctive. And so I guess I went to university and, you know, the first year was like Descartes' meditations or whatever, and I, I wasn't that interested. But at some point, I, I noticed that I was getting more and more into what I was reading and results were getting better and so forth. And I, I, I began to sort of feel it really several years later when I was working at the Royal Society of Arts. And I noticed that in meetings, I would often have a way of getting to the heart of a question. And I felt it was directly because of philosophy. It was like, okay, we've got to clarify what we mean by this first. Otherwise, nothing will make sense. So if you're first year at university, it's not really Descartes' meditations that's sort of like firing no. up. What is, fi what is firing What is firing up? up? Well, actually, it was a, it was a political uh, hotbed at the time. Um, Oxford. It was, so this is Oxford, and this is now 96 or so. So this is just before the Blair years. This is just before Blair got elected. Um, and so there was a lot. It was a, it was like the old order was dying at university. That you know, Oxford Union is quite a conservative place. Lots of debates there. Scottish devolution was about to happen. Um, and I actually at the time joined all the political parties. I joined. You know, you I, joined all yeah, of them. So I, I joined. Signed up to the. <laughs> are you allowed to do that? Well, you are because the, the, there's not really any you know monitoring of that. And it's kind of in my nature too. I, I I try not to be a mad relativist, but I am quite interested in looking at multiple perspectives. The reason we called ourselves Perspectiva, you know, is partly because grew out of that. That there's some truth in everything. You know, no, everyone is partly right most of the time. Um, and uh, I used to go along to things. I got interested. But what was really firing me up, I suppose, was just the social, you know, just the what's going on here, social life of a student existence, which is who fancies who, who's friends with whom, uh, what do I have to do to get noticed? What do I have to do to get ahead? You're doing it or you're just reflecting on it? I'm doing both. Okay. Yeah, okay, usually. <laughs> and at that point, chess was subsiding a bit already. You know, it was big, the slow, you know, chess had a lot still to come. But at that point, already there was another life. Interesting, this this perspectiva type of thing mm. and joining all of the, the clubs and so mm. forth. And I've just linked that in my head back to what you were saying about chess yeah. and perhaps the difference between... Uh, the two of us, uh, temperamentally, in as much as, you know, I will attack. I'm right. I'm quite temperamentally sort of like, I'm on this side. Right, 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 right. And right. you're a sort of, you're, you're a sort of, have this sort of meta right. type of yeah. you looking down on things and analysing things from all perspectives. And, uh, yeah, that's quite that's quite fundamental, I would say, to who I am. And it's a, it's a kind of trying to be a, you know, I understand the need for tribes, you know, belonging, uh, identity, mutual support groundedness in place, all that. I totally get it. On the other hand, I think you have to have both that and the capacity to have a larger vantage point yeah. where you recognize that. So sometimes I speak about post-tribal tribalism, you know, trying to get to the right. We want, <laughs> ultimately, you want the universal tribe and your local tribe and lots of tribes in between. 
but we're quite some way from that. Give me the story as you because you end up doing a PhD. So yeah, yeah. So, yeah. so what happened so next? Philosophy obviously becomes really important to you. At right. Some point. So at that point, yeah, and in my final year, I met my future wife Shiva. Um, I learned to meditate as well. I learned transcendental meditation was quite an important part of my you know twenties and early thirties. Um, and I began playing chess for three years. And in that time, I wrote a book called The Seven Deadly Chess Sins, which got me interested in the idea of sin, actually. Um, not as the old-fashioned, you know, moral transgressions uh, dimension, but much more like the human frailty, sort of our, in, our capacity to, you know, Francis Bufford, as you know, puts it as human propensity to fuck things up. Um, it's, a, it's a much better, it's a much better, it's a much better description it is, it of is. what Augustine was talking yes, about when he yes, talked about sin exactly. than sort of like bedroom yes, naughtiness or exactly, whatever. Exactly. <laughs> so once you realize that, it also puts a whole new tenor on the whole question of what we are as human beings. And that, that, that process of writing that book led me more, to get more interested in psychology. So after playing chess for three years and making a little bit of progress, um, I did a master's degree at Harvard on the, the title was called Mind, Brain and Education. So it was about trying to connect psychology and neuroscience to how we learn. And I spent some time with Howard Gardner there, who's quite well known for his multiple intelligence theory. And Robert Keegan made a big intellectual impact. He's not that widely known. He's not a household name in the UK, certainly. But he has a kind of theory of human development, what it's like to develop even as an adult. That is a kind of story of, um, it's a kind of structured view of eudaimonia or flourishing or a structured view of cognitive maturation and emotional maturation. And it's beautiful. Once you see the model uh, and get into it and spend, you know, 10 weeks or so, whatever we did, suddenly you can't see the world in quite the same way again. And it gives you hope as well, because you, you can sense that we're on this ongoing journey to get, you know, more and more sophisticated as we grow up. And it, I find it inspiring, um, but then I still wasn't sure what I was doing in my life. So I'm, I'm kind of bouncing around, really. You know, I, I wasn't, I was enjoying myself enormously. And chess was, the great thing about chess is it gave me a little bit of income. It wasn't like huge. It was never, oh, really? I was never it, rich. A... Yeah. But there was enough sort of residual income to kind of keep doing what I wanted to do. And that was a blessing. And, you know, it wasn't, some things wouldn't be possible without it. But then even after Harvard, I wasn't sure what I was doing. But then I um, decided for various reasons, which are mentioned in the book, that it was time to get married. And um, that was a big commitment, you know, like that changes your life forever, as you know. Um, and um, around the same time, I sort of sensed, I don't want to play chess forever, so what am I going to do? Um, and I met, um, through a chance encounter, my mum my actually in Scotland attended a lecture by someone called Guy Claxton, who's like a Buddhist psychologist. Uh, he's now best known for his work in education. And he um, he was very inspiring for my mum, and she said, you think you really like this guy? So I read his books, and I met up with him, and he became my PhD supervisor. And my PhD was on the subject of what it means to become wiser. I still don't know the answer, wow. but that was the question. Wow, wow, that wow, was the wow, question. Wow. The, 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 um, there's a sort of hinting of a sort of new agey combination in some of what we're talking about here. You've got this neuroscience and you've got Buddhism and you've got some of these sorts of things, which has a feel. Yeah. Tell, tell yeah. me I'm wrong, maybe. Yeah. It has a sort of new age, slightly new agey feel, especially your environmental thing as well. You add to it. Um, <laughs> so, so how do I answer that? The, um, um, that so that so what, what I want to say is, no, Giles, you you've, no, you've got it wrong. You win so no, But you've got it wrong. But on the other hand, I sympathize with why, you know, these little, we have to, we have to, <laughs> get our bearings with someone with these you know, yes. coordinates. And I understand yes. that those together make a pattern. I would be very far from new age, I would say. Okay. However, there was a phase, you know, there was definitely a time when I was doing things like reading the Celestine prophecy and, you know, conversations with God and all these kind of popular spirituality books. So I went through that kind of phase. And uh, later in my life, uh, as you know, uh, I ran this project on spirituality at the RSA. And that was very much about trying to give intellectual dignity to the notion of what the spiritual meant in a way that wasn't anti-religious, um, nor was it religious. It was trying to be somehow holding those perspectives that we spoke about earlier. And now the way I characterize that experience is that when I did that work and it involved maybe, you know, 200 plus people in, in, in various guises coming and going to events, um, I came across three main encounters to my sort of spiritual shtick that I was trying to develop. Um, one was what I called the kind of religious diplomats. And they were like, hang on, you're talking about spirituality. Are you one of us? Are you kind of subverting us? Are you, is this sort of flaky business uh, undermining us? Or are you sort of with us and yes, trying yes, to find yes. the heart of our work? Yes, yes, yes. And another, another sort of tribe was what I call the, um, the spiritual swingers. And by spiritual swingers, I mean those who are like just anything that sounds spiritual. Crystals, astrology, doesn't matter. <laughs> I'll have it, you know. And they come along and say, it's so great you're doing spirituality. We all need to be more spiritual. And that's the kind of stuff that you would object to, I think, and rightly. And there were also interesting 
character was called the Intellectual Assassins. And they were like some of my old university friends who'd be like trying to pin me down analytically. When you say spiritual, what do you mean? Yes, yes, yes. And I would try and give a definition and they'd attack that as well and they'd keep attacking. And I realized over time that these three were actually me, that actually I had a, a bit of each of these things. There's a part of me that wanted to get back to religion and, and take it seriously and belong there again, including the Christian tradition. There was a part of me that was experimental and did want to try things out. And then there was a part of me that was still, you know, university trained and through chess or analytically quite, you know, discerning and trying to like say that sounds like nonsense and that sounds like it might be right. And the spirituality project grew out of that. And actually that was the sort of, you know, prehistory of Perspectiva in a way. It was trying to give intellectual dignity to an idea that's often thought to be nebulous, to give it sort of substance. So this is this is terribly important. And um, I've written before and I've sort of... I don't know, mostly meant it when I've written, but mm -hmm. there's all sorts of yeah. provisos and qualifications that I that I have a I have a problem with spirituality yeah. as a and I suppose my problem with spirituality is an attempt to do what religion did without the institutions yeah. without yeah. the yeah. without or without the discipline without yeah. the totally, um, totally. without um, without sort of things like doctrine which yeah, yeah, is yeah, yeah, yeah. you know yeah. <clears throat> people don't like and that I I once said and I sort of was, Pleased with myself when I wrote it, but I I don't know that that, that spirituality is a religion that's been mugged yeah. by capitalism. Yeah, I saw that. Yeah. You know, and, yeah. and 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 part of me does feel that this yeah. is sort of a very individualistic yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. take right. on what religion yeah. and religion is supposed to require of you a sort of discipline of I agree. well, yeah. something that you've talked about, which is formation. You know? Yes, yes. So I would say things have evolved, and I, I would I'm I'm broadly in agreement with what you say there. The only issue there is how much weight we put on the term spirituality. And what, you know, that's, you know, the finger pointing to the moon, as it were. Like the, the term spirituality is problematic for all sorts of reasons that I've written about. One is that it's a kind of composite noun. And it, it's like you've got tables, chairs, and then spirituality, right? It doesn't really, it's not really what it's doing. That's why in more recent work, I speak about spiritual sensibility. And that's what I'm actually interested in. You have spiritual sensibility because you're thinking of fundamental questions and what it means in your daily life. And that's what that's the kind of thing I'm interested in. And the question I have is for those who feel allergic to religion for whatever reason, in a similar way, I should say that you're allergic to spirituality. There's a sense in which it doesn't sound like them. And it sounds like it's, it's for, for many people, religion would look coercive or domineering or exploitative or whatever. Um, there is something about the notion of spiritual that, that is hard to capture otherwise. It's somewhat like psychological, somewhat like ethical. It's somewhat like um, uh, it's something to do with... Aesthetic. It, aesthetic, yeah. yeah. It's got all of these different dimensions. Um, but it, it manages to hold them all in a, and I hope, quite a prismatic way. So when I say, when I hear the word spirituality, like you, I have a slight, um, I wince slightly because I feel like... It's, it's over concrete. It sort of destroys the concept in being too, too specific because it's not a noun. Yeah. It's much more a kind of disposition of the self to want to grow, to want to understand, to want the broadest, fullest, deepest perspective on life. I suppose the other, the other, the sort of the other thing that makes me, I wince is the wrong word, but sort of sit up a little bit, is the way in which um, Buddhism has been used in the West yeah, yeah. in a way that would probably be quite unrecognisable yeah, totally, <laughs> to totally. people yeah, 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 within yeah, yeah, yeah. Eastern traditions. So what I can tell you is that in the process of doing that work at the RSA, which went back to, where are we now, 2012, 13-ish that I began it. In the process of doing that, I met lots of great people who were Christians. And at, before I began the project, my premise was something like, religion's on the way out. Uh, but we need a spiritual life, especially for our major problems like climate change and stuff, where we need this broader, fuller perspective about what life's for. Otherwise, we're not going to cope, right? But religion's not going to do it. That was my premise. I don't feel that way quite anymore. But through meeting various people and like people who come to mind include Liz Oldfield, Ian Christie, Jules Evans, Mark Vernon, various people who are actually very thoughtful Christians and actually make a really good impression personally. And I got to know them better and I began to think, whatever they have, I want some of that, you know. So um, I got interested. I read Francis Bufford's book that we alluded to earlier. I started going to church. Unapologetic. Unapologetic, which yeah. is a truly great book. I mean, one of the best written books ever, I think. And I went to uh, church a few times even, not because I suddenly found God or suddenly felt Jesus made sense, but it began to seem every bit as reasonable as any other worldview. It stopped being something like coercive and a bit old fashioned. And I began to think, well, if that's not it, then what, you know, what exactly is your view then? If it's not that, there's a commitment there. There's a discipline there. There's a community there. You know, don't be such a child. What are you afraid of? Right. And I'm with you on that. 
But I also recognize that not everyone is, right? And I recognize you need sort of gateways. You need ways in. So if you can start getting people to think about their life in its fullest perspective, um, think about mm. the fact they might die and what that means to them. What does love mean to them? What does the, the, the sort of integration and transcendence of the self mean to them? Then you start to get the conversation enriching. And I think I managed to get more people interested in the subject than I would have done if I'd spoken of religion directly. I'm sure that's true. Um, last thing on Buddhism, just to add, Buddhists were invited to the party too. And that's what I'm saying about full perspectives. Like, you know, we need not to be, you know, Christian left, rah, 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 let's go, right? We need to be something about, there is dignity there. There's something beautiful and honorable about that view of the world. But it's likely to be a partial perspective. It's likely to miss certain things and overemphasize others. And that's true of Buddhism too. So like, I'm not sure about the unreality of the self. I'm not absolutely sure that really uh, we don't have an immortal soul. I just don't know. But if I can just come come uh, back to you on this perspectiva, sort of quasi-relativistic thing, how do you maintain the distinctiveness of, yeah. of all these different traditions that you have in play, Christianity, yeah. Buddhism, yeah, 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 yeah. deep ecology, or yeah, yeah, whatever yeah, yeah, it is and yeah, so forth, yeah. without them becoming a sort of mush? Right, good question. And the answer is sort of a kind of bilingualism, or at least bilingual, yes. in the sense that people need to learn their mother tongue. They need to know what they feel most at home with, where they identify what feels like it's it's um, both safe and and stretching in certain senses. But they also need a certain sympathy and curiosity towards other traditions and not to feel unduly threatened by them. So the idea of avoiding the collapse into relativism, you're not saying everything is true. That's not the point. You're saying usually everything is true to some extent in some context for some people for some purposes, right? And that gives you a much more refined, it's not relativistic, it's perspectival. They're quite different. It's not anything goes. It's tell me what you're trying to do and I'll tell you if what you're doing make, makes sense, right? Or um, tell me what you're trying to do and I'll tell you how true it is to your tradition. Um, tell me what you're trying to do and I'll, I'll say if it looks like it, it makes sense to me. Well, you see, I understand this and I, I, do, I, I really do sympathise. I mean, and, and I particularly sympathise with the idea of trying to develop a sort of bilingual yeah, uh, yeah. approach to, uh, to, to, to religion and spirituality. Yeah, yeah. I mean, my wife is Israeli, yeah. my children are Jewish, right. and, and so I'm challenged with how do I bring... I'm a priest, yeah, yeah, so yeah, how yeah. do I bring up my two children who are both Jewish? And, and in, the best I can do, I'm not saying this is the perfect way of doing it, lots of people will not like it, is to sort of do both but keep them... Just a little bit apart, yeah. so they don't bleed into each right, other and right. so forth. So there's there's dignity. There's a lovely line. What's coming to mind as you use that analogy is the the Halil Gibran line about marriage: stand together, but not too close together, oh, for yes. the pillars of a temple stand apart. And it's a bit like that. Like you don't have to mush together. You know, you can keep that discrimination and say, well, I actually don't fully buy that. You know, uh, Jesus was the Son of God in any distinct way. And you you say you don't buy that. You know, the self is ultimately unreal. And where's our common ground? We can find it. Uh, we don't have to live with a coercive truth. We don't have to make truth sort of monolithic such that everyone has to buy into it. But it has to have a certain amount of coherence and, and, and mutual, uh, mutual benefit. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Khalil Gibrama gives me the heebie-jeebies as well. I imagine he does. <laughs> um, actually, you might find this funny, but in, some, in many uh, civil wedding uh, places, they explicitly dis disallow Halil Gibran yes. because yes. it's overused, right? <laughs> but but nonetheless, I, I didn't heard that, but I have a lot of sympathy. Yeah, 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 yeah. But he was, um, but the the prophet still <laughs> is a work of art, so I'll, I won't apologise for fine, using it. Fine, yeah. fine, fine, absolutely. One of the really interesting bits in in your book, you you where you sort of start to to move into my area, talk about Christianity right. a bit. Uh, you start to talk about sacrifice, which yes. of course is essential to yeah. to playing chess. You you sacrifice for some greater gain, of course. Yes. Perhaps you could just say something about that. Sure. Well, I mean, this was part of the sort of spiritual education I was speaking about earlier when you're beginning to make your peace with your cultural tradition, right? So being culturally Christian and, and becoming more curious about what it would be to be religiously Christian. And it was one Easter where I was just growing absolutely mad at all the chocolate bunnies and Easter eggs and just thinking, this is not it. Whatever it is, it's not this, right? So I actually got some Christian friends together and I asked them, I'm, I'm going to write about the connection between chess and Easter, what's going on? And of course, the first thing that came across was the notion of sacrifice, because chess players are constantly sacrificing pieces and pawns for various kinds of advantage. And a real sacrifice is one where you can't be sure of getting it back quickly, where you have to trust that somehow there's a greater good 
in this sacrificial process. So you may give away a knight or a bishop or a pawn, and you can't be sure of getting it back. You just trust somehow in the way the position's unfolding that it will make sense. And in that context, I looked again at the Easter story. And what I found was, first of all, that it's altogether more dark and deliciously dark than I thought. Where the Christmas story is a bit lighter, right? It's sort of friendlier at some level. But the Christian, maybe, because I know there's a manger and a refugee, blah, blah, blah. There's lots of stuff going on. Herod. Yeah, Herod, yeah. <clears throat> but there's still something about the brutality of the torture and the visual sacrifice that's made. And I thought, well, what's that all about? And in the book, I try and make sense of um, what it is to be to be generous interpretation. How could this story make sense? And in what sense would it would this sacrifice say anything about who we are and how we should live? And I walk through a little bit based on my chess experience of sacrifice, uh, why that story actually went for me from being when people used to say Christ died on the cross for our sins. I thought, what the hell are you talking about? It doesn't make any sense. But I actually tried really hard to say, well, what, what would it mean if it did make sense? And how could I be generous and make sense of it? And as a result, I got to a place where I thought it's no longer ridiculous. It's actually just something that uh, stretches the imagination, feels merely highly unlikely rather than implausible. You know, it had a sort of it grew in its its significance and its reality for me. So I can see how this this combination of things I, I don't know what the chronology of this is, but environmentalism, uh-huh. how that mm. relates to this. Right. Um, so here's the thing. The funny thing um, for someone who's worked a lot on climate change, I actually think the notion of environmentalism doesn't help us because I think it makes it sound like a discrete thing, another subject that's separate. A bit like I don't think the notion of religion really helps us. I think we need to get a bit better at noticing the patterns that connect everything. So I care deeply about, you know, a world that's ecologically sane, right? But I think if you speak about environmentalists and non-environmentalists, you're beginning to sort of separate things that should be naturally joined. So when you're talking about something like climate change or biodiversity loss, you're very much speaking about the economy, about the political structures of your time. You're speaking about global financial capital flows. You're speaking about people's day-to-day behavioral habits. You're speaking about smartphones and how they make it hard to pay attention to anything bigger than the immediate moment. Um, So... It's not as though I don't care about environmental issues. It's that I think the language of environmentalism, a bit like the language of spirituality, actually subtly undermines what it's trying to develop. All of that's true. But again, the, 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 there's, there's both keeping things yeah. distinctive yeah. and, and yeah. noticing yeah. their connections yes, as right, well. It's right, right. the both and right, of this right. and so forth. So, so in, just in terms of your or yeah. the chronology of yeah. when the sort of... So it blew my mind. So what happened was I uh, joined the RSC, I think, in 2009, um, and then a couple of years later, I started working on the time behavior change was a big deal. That probably gives you an analogy as well. But um, it was like the nudge unit was coming and the, uh, the various books were coming out. Daniel Kahneman was big at the time. Um, and uh, I was trying to do something different at the RSA and I wrote a report called Transforming Behavior Change Beyond Nudge and Neuromania. I was trying to problematize a lot of the prevailing ideas, but saying nonetheless, it's true that we need to change our behavior. You know, that premise is right. It's just how do we do it? And what kind of richness of resource do we draw upon, which led to the spirituality project. But around that time, someone called me up from a climate change funder and said, we like your work on behavior change. Can you apply it to climate change? And I was like, well, I don't know. I'll try. And I started reading about climate change. And Mike Berners-Lee book um, was a very, very important around this time. Um, but I suddenly got a sense of the big picture. It was a kind of political consciousness waking up. Climate change is a great introduction to what might be called political consciousness. And by that, I mean, you can't really understand the issue properly unless you look deeply into the heart of capitalism. You look deeply into the nature of governance and you look deeply into the human soul and only then see how they link together. And then you begin to get climate change and think, oh my God, it's really, really hard to deal with this. It's a fundamental problem embedded, endemic in the entire world system. And then what do we do, right? That's where I'm looking for resources that are somewhat beyond the current prevailing ideas, left, right, center, whatever, looking more deeply at, well, how do we imagine a different kind of civilization? It seems to me that part of the problem uh, is that uh, the sort of notion of liberal capitalism, Mm -hmm. liberalism Mm -hmm. more generally, Mm -hmm. is that it's incredibly uncomfortable with the whole idea of limits. Yes, yes. And that limits is, in a a sense, something that you are reflecting upon. Yeah. Throughout your intellectual trajectory, and chess is a reflection away yeah. on limits. It is. I mean, there's, there's a bounded board. Within yeah. it, there's a lot of possibilities. Exactly in, right. It, almost infinite number. But still, there are rules, and there are, I think one of the uh, vignettes in the book, I speak about the importance of rules. Um, when I watch these young, young children playing with an outside chess set, 
And they were um, running back and forwards with the pieces, throwing them around, saying, look, we're playing chess, we're playing chess. And I didn't mind that kids were being kids, but I didn't mind they thought we were playing chess. I was saying, no, no, that's actually not chess. Chess has rules, right? And then unless you have the rules, you don't get the beauty and you don't get the rewards and all that. Um, but on the notion of limits, this is interesting because um, I grew up in a, a sort of, I don't know, my grandfather brought me up for a little while. So he was working in a granite quarry. My mum was a nursery teacher, my father an artist. So I'm sort of my, my background, I'm sort of a natural lefty, you could say. However, A, I don't think the political spectrum makes sense anymore. But B, the more I've thought ecologically, the more I've understood that a lot of the conservative intellectual tradition, not political conservatism, which is sort of free markets gone mad, but the kind of notion of respecting of limits, groundedness in place, a sort of natural ecological sensibility, um, has a lot of dignity in it, right? So part of the problem with climate change is being driven by principally by the political left, but actually some of the underlying principles we need are more naturally in the traditional right. So, so honestly, Giles, I really think, I know you've got a lovely line about being a hard left Tory, which is great, but equally, I do think the time for the political spectrum to be problematized is here. Like we have to stop thinking with it and start thinking about it. It's not really serving us well. We're still no. using it, this very redundant hollowed out language that doesn't make sense of ecology, doesn't make sense of technology, it doesn't make sense of globalization. It's grounded in a, you know, what was it, 1789 it came into existence. So like it's long since outlived its usefulness and we're using a dead metaphor. So what, what, is, the, what is the metaphor? The, the left and right thing yeah, is the yeah, problem. Yeah, the, yeah the, the political spectrum yeah. is, is misinformation. It's, it's actually a kind of ideology in itself. It's used to describe ideologies. But what it does is it says the key distinctions are individual and collective, state and capital and so forth. Um, but actually, those distinctions are no longer really where political life is at. It's like, what do we do about this rampaging technological development? What do we do about ecological collapse? And what do we do about global financial capital being un, un, unchained or untethered? Um, and those are the questions that will define our time and whether we survive or thrive. And they can't be plotted they, they on can't the left, They can't be plotted right. on left-right, and it doesn't help us. And what can um, they be plotted on? What's well, that, the question? That's, a good, that's a good and generative question. We need to create better maps. Images, Otherwise, we, maps yeah. Means, yeah. Images, maps, metaphors. There's a lot of work to do to refresh our political language because at the moment it's just noise, right? Yeah. And that's our stuckness, isn't it? I mean, part of the stuckness that we have now... Uh, is the fact that we just don't have the metaphors, the maps yes, that's right. to describe the, our political condition. Exactly. And, that, and our human condition even. I think uh, one of the reasons we created Perspectiva was precisely that. It's that there's this sense of integration between the system shaping our lives, our inner lives being confused. So we have various different kinds of crises. One is crisis just to make sense of the world, like what's going on. Another is a kind of like capability crisis. Do we have what it takes cognitively, emotionally, technologically, politically to deal with big issues? Then there's a kind of like a legitimacy crisis. Who gets to say, you know, in a world where we're, we no longer have kings, like who's in power, who has legitimacy to, you know, Brexit's a good example of a clash between parliament and people or whatever, whereby it's just not clear where legitimacy lies. And then you have, uh, finally, a kind of meaning crisis, which is like, as, as in some countries, religion dies and in some it flourishes. Like, what are we living for together? So collectively, these things create something like a meta-crisis, you know, an incapacity to understand who we are and what we should do. And that's something we need new resources for. We need to take seriously, refreshing our language, deeper metaphors, uh, fuller understandings of how things connect. How, how did you get on at the RSA? Because in a way, the RSA seems to be a sort of temple of, I mean, and I mean no disrespect to the RSA, but it's a sort of temple of a sort of instrumentalised way of looking at uh, our sort of social problems. Sure. Well, I'm deeply grateful, first of all, because they brought me out of chess. The RSA saved me from chess. I can tell them in a good way. I mean, chess is a... Nice Perhaps thing. we should say so. Could you say something about the history of the RSA? For people yeah, who don't so know? the Royal Society of Arts is a sort of enlightened organization and it's done various great and good works over the years, uh, various kinds of social contribution. It's a membership organization, so it has about, and not up to date, but I think 28,000 or so members. It has a wonderful public uh, events platform where people give their talks and that's a huge YouTube channel on the back of that. But they also have this kind of um, policy drive to. Uh, work on, you know, they speak about 21st century enlightenment. So they're trying to bring the principles of enlightenment to bear in a very different kind of world. But Giles, you're right that they, there is a kind of instrumentality uh, and the enlightenment principles of trusting and reason and, and rationality are baked in there. That said, it's to Matthew Taylor's credit that he created the Social Brain Project that later became a center that I directed. 
which was trying to question some of these assumptions um, and allowed me to do a spirituality project there. So on the one hand, yes, they have their kind of default mode of operating, but they do invite in lots of radical and alternative perspectives too. So how did I get on there? Well, I loved it. I learned a lot. I grew a lot. But yeah, there was a point about six years in where I felt I'd outgrown it too. You've brilliantly uh, described some of the sort of stuckness that we have. Um, but that old Marx quote about, you know, not describing the world, but changing sure, sure, it sure, and so sure, forth. Sure. Um, where's the... Wh- where what are do the, we do? <laughs> well, give me some of what we do. I mean, I yeah. know that's not the... Yeah. It's not the philosopher's strong point, but yeah. I'm going to press you no, on No, no, anyway. it's a really important part. And actually, I believe we need to get better at that. I think for, for at least every two criticisms, there should be one suggestion. You know, I think that's kind of how we have to start living. Um, well, where do we start? I think we look deeply at... We start by saying... By, by, by cooling down, first of all. We sort of recognize, look, none of us fully understands what's going on. Let's try and be less tribal, less sure of ourselves, a bit of intellectual humility as a general piece of advice. Otherwise, we can't hear each other. We also, as I say in my my book about chess, we need to learn to concentrate. And by concentrate, I mean hold the tension of competing perspectives long enough to actually begin to understand what might be going on, right? Yeah, it's holding attention because what often happens is through emotional discomfort, we lash out. You know, for example, I'm a bit uncomfortable with the fact that you're a Brexiteer, but I can live with it, you know, because I know that you have many other qualities and it doesn't define you and all the rest of it. But, but that's the sort of thing. We shouldn't become allergic to people yeah, yeah, just yeah. on the basis of some identity. The second thing is um, we have to look deeply into uh, the war in our attention uh, because if we lose that, if we lose the capacity to actually form the self and think deeply about community and we're lost in our smartphones, we're in trouble. The other thing is... Um, financial flows. We need to think hard about the the hidden force of money in shaping the world. So I wrote a report while I was at the RSA called Money Talks, which was about divesting in in fossil fuels and redirecting that money to invest in renewable energy. If there was one thing practically one could do, it would be that. Change the money flow. Not just because each individual doing it adds up cumulatively. It's because of the signal you send. You've got to send a signal about a different future. On energy, that's certainly renewable energy and not fossil fuels. But not just that, on democracy, it's like, well, obviously our democracy is in trouble in various ways. It's not functioning very well. The question is, what are we doing about it? So the work I'm doing is to try and change the nature of the conversations we have and how we have them. But I think everyone has to think hard about beyond voting, what are you doing to revive democracy culturally? You know, um, how are you getting better at speaking with people with different views? And I think unless we can get back to that kind of, you know, non-tribal disinterested actually like a kind of passionate disinterest and by disinterest i mean not trying to advance any particular cause but together trying to really understand what's going on and what we should do can i speak up for tribalism just a little bit Uh, to this extent is that uh the part of the reason i'd listen to you even though you're other than me and and vice versa as it were is that we also recognize something in each other that we're part of some sameness yes and that would be you could just do that Tribally, you yes, could describe yes, that tribally. Yes, yes. So, because I recognise your so, our tribal uh, solidarity, yeah, yeah. it's that that enables me to go. Well, he's a Remainer, right? Yeah, and I yeah, can, of course, you know, of course, and, and vice versa. And so, tribes is actually not always the problem. It's no. actually part of the solution. It, yeah, I, and I, I said earlier, yeah, the, the, we, but it's a certain kind of tribalism, right? It's how it's held. It has yes. to be held lightly with humor, yes. with a certain... There's a lovely definition of autonomy that's an open system that's capable of closing itself. And I always find that useful, like for any given person or community. It's like, okay, you're capable of closing yourself. That's what makes you distinct and separate from the rest. But you're open as well. You can take influences and you can give out as well. Um I'm reminded here of uh, Ian McGilchrist. I don't know if you know, but he has a he makes reference to a lovely. Uh, I think it might even be in the Torah, but it's a Jewish mystical story about one of the first things God did, being everything, was to sort of create a separate part of Himself that He could then relate to. And there's something that you, I'll need to check out the details, but the essence of it is that because God was everything, and that was sort of not not ideal, God wanted to create something that was other that He would then retreat from. And in the process of that, suddenly there was some relationship, and through the relationship, you know, the, well, and that's, the multitudes. That of course, I mean, that of course is actually one of the classic definitions of what the Trinity does, right, right, right. which is actually the whole idea of relationship right. is intrinsic right, to the right. nature of God, yeah. three and one, and one and three, and so forth. Yeah, right. Well, great, and, and I'm sure there's more too. But yes, the, yes. the point is that they're not mutually exclusive, right? <laughs> yes. They actually they're mutually they're, they're co-defining, they're co-constitutive. 
of each other. You need, just as the whole thing about individual and collective, clearly you need both, right? You don't want coercive communitarianism. You want a kind of community that supports the individual. You don't want a mad individualism. You want an, an individual grounded in his relationships. So a lot of these distinctions are clearly uh, both and rather than either or. So I want to go back to something that you said, which we, we in our enthusiasm, we passed over, but it was very interesting, this stuff about concentration, because right. you talk a, right. a little bit about concentration and the fact that we live in a world that makes concentration so much more difficult. Yeah. And clearly that's true. I mean, everywhere we're being, we're being bombarded with advertising and things that are demanding yeah. our attention. Yeah. How, do, how do we concentrate in a world that's trying to distract us continually? Yeah. You have to fight for it, really. I mean, it's you have to first of all realize just how important it is because it doesn't have a price tag, right? So it's not obvious what an hour of concentration does for you, but it's it's central to any life well lived because um, it's really about your will formation. It's about unless you can concentrate, you can't really hear yourself speak to yourself about what you want uh, and how you, you know how you want to live. So how do you do it? Well, first of all. Design your smartphones carefully so that they're not you're not being notified every second. I mean, I have faults there myself. We're all you know at risk of those kind of addictions, but be careful with your smartphone use, obviously. But not just that. I would say carve out time. That one of the reasons when I was exercising more often than I am now, I used to like going swimming, was it was the only place where I would be sure I wouldn't have my smartphone. You know, it would be a time out of time where my mind was free from any distraction. So like things like that, where you're actually cut off from the world for a while with an easy route back to it, um, need to make them more often. And the reason you need to make them is that they're actually precious. So when you ask, how do you do it? The answer is not so much, you know, here are the hints and tips about how to make it happen. It's more the first thing you need to realize is just how precious it is. And once you get that, once you know the intrinsic rewards of concentrating, the flow that comes from that, um, then it's much easier to set aside time in your own life to make it happen. It's part of the problem that we've got a pathological fear of boredom. Uh, fear of the self as well. You oh, know, hearing our own mind. He, yeah, you. being with yourself. Part of the distraction we want is the neurotic mind is chasing us and we're trying to outrun it. So I think part of it is being at peace with yourself, not being afraid of yourself, and doing things you love because you love them, especially when they don't have extrinsic rewards. You, know, you don't do it for the money or the fame. But the things you take time out to do because they're just deeply beautiful and rewarding activities. It's something that used to be called prayer, I think. Prayer's part of the story. (laughs) But I mean, well, actually, I mean, you know, um, you're being probably half joking there. But I mean, the the attention we pay during prayer is not that dissimilar in its quality from any kind of attention. It's a kind of, you know, it's, it's trying to get a richer view of the self or getting beyond the self in a certain sense. And trying to experience that sort of openness to to something other than one's own chattering mind, yeah. and it's an, that attention, like Simon Weil talking about yeah, attention, yeah, is yeah. a sort of moral quality and a yeah, aesthetic yeah, quality, yeah. and a, ah. I guess a spiritual quality. It well, is. I'll, I'll, so, I'll so, split the difference. Yeah, with you there. no, no, no. I'm happy to do that. <laughs> and um, they, I have an essay coming out in Eon Magazine quite soon where I speak more deeply about concentration. But you're absolutely right that I believe this is the kind of front line when you ask me what do we do. It's we need forms of education that actually cultivate the love and capacity to concentrate for sustained periods, which we currently don't focus on. We focus on the content of what we're taught, but not the kind of modus operandi that allows us to actually grow and enrich our lives through concentration. Now, thank you for talking about education, because that that neatly yeah. uh, brings uh, me to your essay, which oh. I, I, I read on uh, building of yep. formation yep. and uh, the absence of that in in education. Now, I thought this was a terribly important piece of work. Perhaps you'd just say a little sure. bit about this tradition, yep. uh, and then I'll quiz you a bit on it. Okay. Tell, tell me what building is. Okay. So, as context, this was for the Centre for the Understanding of Sustainable Prosperity, which is Tim Jackson Centre at the University of Surrey. I was invited to write about building because I'd spoken about it to them. Now, building is a Germanic term that doesn't roll off the tongue in English. Um, one of the definitions would be something like transformative civic education. But the term means like directly education, but its deeper meaning is kind of formation or even realization of the self in some sense. Um, and it goes all the way back to like the third Earl of Shaftesbury, um, who noticed the connection between what he called inner building, the, the formation of the self, and outer building, the formation of society. And he was noticing a very close connection between how the self was formed and how the self matured and grew and how society did the same. And then drawing the connection both ways. 
society shapes itself, self-shapes society, and so forth. So I wrote about this in the context of our crises that we face, particularly the ecological crisis, on the back of a quotation by Thomas Metzinger, who wrote an essay on uh, spirituality, no less. Uh, but he's a German philosopher, and he had a lovely line in there, and I'll, I'll misquote it slightly, but the essence of it goes um, that over the next few years, uh, as we observe the repeated failure of the human species to deal with the effects of, of climate collapse, we will increasingly come to see ourselves as failing beings. And by that he means that climate change will exceed the present cognitive and emotional capacities of the species, right? So that line really got my mind, like the present emotional and cognitive capacities of the species. What are they? What do we know about them, first of all, scientifically, empirically, question. But also, what do we know in the religious tradition and other traditions about how we cultivate them? Because that's a lot of what religion's doing. What we've forgotten about religion yes, is yes. it has this path quality, right? Yes. It has this, this is how you enrich Formation and grow. Formation feels Formation. to me like a very, the sort of thing that as a priest, yeah. when I go into theological college, what it's called is formation. Right, right. And it's education, but it's also about shaping the self. Right, right. And those two things are not distinct things. They're not. They should be the same thing. And the other thing is that it shouldn't just be about the institutional schools that we get in the first, whatever, 20% of our lives. Um, somehow we need to bring back the spirit of education being not just a kind of means to an economic end, but actually an end in itself. So that actually what we're living for is to keep on growing in a sense. And the universities have fundamentally failed at doing this. I would say... Uh, I wouldn't go that far, but you're certainly certainly on the similar page. I think there are some places that are still trying to keep alive humanistic, you know, reflective traditions of formation. But I agree that the, the neoliberal turn, which says the reason you go to school and university is to get a better paying job with better credentials, is a tragedy, you know, and it's killed off some of the best of civilization as a result. So, yeah, the purpose of education ultimately should be a kind of formation of the self. But crucially, and this is key to the concept of building that people often forget, it's very much the cultivation of the self in service of the needs of society in a particular point in history. It's not a random dehistoricized notion of like just get, you know, it's not self-help. It's not like go forth and be a better person. It's what does the world need from you now and what do you need to learn to, to become that? And on climate change especially, that's a very salient question. But even on Brexit, even on any given public policy issue, the question is, what do I need to become for this to be a better issue? And how do I need to learn to become that? And that's formation. That's the, the, the two formations that the third Earl of Shaftesbury was speaking about need to be in better alignment. And, and all of this, you know, goes back and reminds me of, of this little kid playing chess again. I mean, th th this is not unconnected to all of this, is it? Because, you know, this is not simply a... Uh, um, you know, the way in which some people think about chess, mm. I imagine, mm. is that your 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 computer is just a lot bigger than other yeah. people's yeah. computer. You know, no, you're no, just no. you're just. I mean, I'm sure you are, but you're ten times smarter than everyone else, and it's a smartness competition. No. But it's something more yeah. Yeah. subtle than that, isn't it? Yeah. No, so I very much credit chess was kind of my own Bildung, if you like, and I, I even you could even there's actually a term Bildungsroman, which probably you're familiar with. Like it's the, the, the Harry Potter would be a classic Bildungsroman. Basically, it literally means something like an education novel, crudely, but it's a, a novel about the formation of a self. So just as Harry Potter went from whatever he was, uh, young eight, eight year old up to eighteen, and forgive me if I got that wrong, but those roughly yeah, those yeah, ages. Yeah. Um, but, and we see him grow. He has relationships. He, ha he has realizations. He becomes something. Now, for him, the formation was, you know, the Ministry of Magic or whatever, or Hogwarts. For me, it was mostly the chessboard. It was like that form of encounter and mystery and growth that was only possible because I was testing myself on a regular basis and kind of seeing what came back and thinking, oh, that's who I am. Oh, that's what I have to learn. That's what I felt. This is an interesting question. So presumably, sometimes you can play chess against people who are brighter than you oh, yeah. in terms of intellectual, yeah. horse, sheer intellectual yeah, yeah, horsepower, yeah. Yeah. and yet you're definitely going to beat them. Um, yes, yes. It's not really a... I mean, obviously, the whole question of what intelligence is is important because it means many things. And, and as an aside, recently I, re I read an interview with the current world chess champion, Magnus Carlsen, whom people assume is super intelligent. He said, actually, I don't think I'm particularly intelligent. My father's more intelligent than me. And I sort of know what he means. I mean, leaving aside the empirical side of that, um, I actually think of maybe above average intelligence, but not more. I know lots of people whom I would think of as brighter, whatever that means. And I think a part of a Bildung would be a, a richer conception of intelligence that included embodied and emotional and you know other forms of activity. 
But it's not about being smart. It's not really about outthinking so much. It's about learning your lessons well. It's also about controlling your nervous system over the board. Keeping that concentration going for seven hours at a time requires a certain amount of emotional self-regulation. So you don't, you know, you res- you can resist temptation several hours yeah, in a row. Knowing something about your instincts and what your instincts yes. lead you to do, and yes. so forth. And presumably, that's very good training for relationships and <laughs> marriage. Even. Well, you'd have to speak to <laughs> others about that. But um, I mean, it it is a source of learning. There's no doubt about it, and that's what I tried to convey in the book. But um, you know, it's not easy being human. Like you know, any relationship is hard. Marriage is hard. I um. I do write quite a lot in the book about the people I met through the game, and that's a big part of it too, right? The kind of collateral, the sort of the context in which one learns or one is formed is partly about the people you meet along the way, um, and they're the people who shape you. But we, we've we've got this. I, I spoke about the Cold War before. We've had this narrative. I suppose it was it is a slightly Cold War narrative about chess, mm. about strutting yeah, egos, yeah, 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 and the clash of great. Yeah, you know yeah, the sort yeah, of yeah, yeah. you know some of the great chess right. games about so, being this sort of clash of strutting egos. So here's the funny thing about chess in the media landscape. The media the media's coverage of chess is really like a, a cliche fest. You know, it really struck the media generally struggles to do justice to chess because a it doesn't. Typically, the people who are writing about it or presenting it don't know the game well enough from the inside, from playing it for years, to know what it really contains, including its beauty, its formation qualities, um, its depth, certainly, the rewards of concentration that we've spoken about. For them, it's mostly a kind of a metaphor for kind of business and politics about one side outgunning the other. And that is there. That's a necessary conceit, you know, but it's not the heart of the matter. Yes. And I guess the other thing that people are interested in when it comes to chess is like, you know, can can you beat my smartphone? You know, all that. Well, all the answer that is sort of... probably not. You know, I, one, once upon a time I could. Um, but now that's the thing about chess. I actually think coming back to intelligence too, like, uh, you know, first of all, you can be good at chess and still be beaten by your smartphone quite easily. Um, that wasn't the case 10, 20 years ago, but it's becoming so. But that calls into question more broadly. What is the story about um, what the human advantage over the computer is? We used to think it was something like intelligence, right? We used to think the humans could outthink the computer. But no, the advantage we have over the computer is consciousness. It's not intelligence. It's the fact that we're self-aware. It's the fact that we can, first of all, unplug the, the computer or turn off the smartphone. But not just that, that we can help to program it. We can give it a different color. We can, you know, we're the ones who are consciously aware of what's going on and can self-reflect and grow. Whereas the smartphone is algorithmically driven and has its own power but really we need to get better understanding what our unique power is but here's the real metaphor for me that's like the big then about chess which is like uh, terrifying and so forth because that whole idea of algorithm mm. and algorithm being equaling intelligence equaling power yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's yeah, the yeah. world in which we live right and, and i we're swamped by that sort of uh that combination yeah. of things i'm with you and i and actually to use an analogy here um there's a chess, there was a real chess prodigy, by the way, called Demis Hassapis, who's now the CEO of DeepMind, which is a company run by Google, well, connected with Google. And Demis's stump speech includes the line that the purpose of the company DeepMind, which is now a very powerful, impressive company, producing great scientific work and lots of lovely people I know there. But their premise is, if you can solve intelligence, you can solve everything else. It's just yes. not true. Yes. Um, yes. We don't, first of all, we don't have the sufficiently, sufficiently rich idea of intelligence. And secondly, um, it's the wrong kind of computational algorithmic view of the kinds of problems human beings have. Our problems are much more social, emotional, spiritual, which is not to say if we get that right, if we grow and form in the right way, if building applies at scale and we become this enlightened civilization again, then maybe we can use technology wisely. But at the moment, we're floundering. But um, Bildung is embodied intelligence, isn't it? I mean, is, is, is em- that embodied in is culture? That part of what it's Descartes, part. You should have been concentrating in this first year at university. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, there is. There's a bit of that. No, and so embodied in cultured, um, and including you, you would include the technology of the day in that, right? So you know, this is not an anti-technology argument at all. It's one of saying, you know, it's the old stuff about. Uh, technology outstripping our wisdom. You know, it's like we have to kind of keep pace in a certain sense. And we we can't keep pace algorithmically, of course, but can we be wise enough to use the algorithms well? And that's an open question. This world that's dominated by the sort of algorithmic intelligence seems to efface the sort of humanity of intelligence. And I'm sort of like happier with being 
a bit thicker, as it were, and a bit more human. I don't even know how to say that properly. So, but we put it back to you, what would be your ideal? Like, I mean, obviously, we can't stop. The genie is out of the bottle, right? Technology is rampant. I'm a it's Luddite. Growing. I'm afraid I'm a Luddite. Yeah, but, you know, your children are going to live in this world. Like, you know, what do we do? Like, it's, the technology is here to stay. Uh, and it's a good thing if it's handled well. The question is, what do we need to handle it well? That's, that's a, a tough question, but that's the one we have to ask. And 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 what 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 give us the point is that that it, it's not terminated. Well, it's a, the, you know, I think there's a lot to be said about who owns this stuff first of all, because okay. it's a public. So it's an economic. An so it's economic. A, a economic and legal and political question: who owns this stuff? Can we bring it into some kind of wise public control that is universal in spirit? And that's way beyond where we are politically, but in, in principle, it should be. If it's if it's shaping our life world that much. There needs to be some kind of benign, disinterested way of controlling it that isn't about extracting our attention for profit. And the second thing is um, just think more deeply about what we're all living for. The meaning crisis I mentioned, like if the purpose of society is indefinite economic growth, we're screwed. But if we can create a, a higher order purpose that's closer to Bildung, which is something about the formation of self and service of society, then technology can become our ally if it's controlled in the right way and directed in the right way. Jonathan Rosen, thank you very much indeed. Pleasure, pleasure, pleasure. <laughs> thank you for listening to this episode of Confessions with me, Giles Fraser. If you're enjoying the podcast, please do rate and review it and do subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. I'll be joined by another guest next week for another episode of Soul Bearing and I do hope you'll tune in then. And do check out the website, unheard.com. Unheard.com.